Welcome to Learnings from the Middle, a podcast where a product owner and a software engineer, longtime friends, occasional coworkers, and occasional Halo opponents delve into their experiences and careers in the tech industry. All opinions are our own and not our employers or anyone else's. And I am one half of the podcast, the software engineering half. I'm Brian. I've been a, an engineer for a little over a decade. John, do you want to introduce yourself? Yep. I'm John. I'm on the product side of the fence. Um, I've been in and around product for about the last four or five years, uh, but I've been around uh, software development management and business analyst and product management roles for over a decade now. Awesome. And tonight we are talking about the, the prompt we've got is, should operations be part of product development? And mm. we're going to have our standard list of long caveats that I think we do at the beginning of every episode. Uh, these are going to be our opinions. There is usually no fast and hard answer that solves every question for every situation. So there is a lot of room for context and applying different tools and different approaches in different situations. And then also, I think I'm going to give John a chance, you a chance, John, to add any caveats you want. But then we're going to define our terms because operations and product development teams can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So we're going to start by defining what we're talking about. Do you have any other caveats you want to throw in? No, I think you nailed it. Maybe just to reiterate again, it's just I think we both have backgrounds and situations where we we can form strong opinions for, but there were specific parameters and specific cultures and specific situations that define mm -hmm. those opinions. So while we may have logical reasons for like at least having a view on how this should be done, I think it's just acknowledging that one size doesn't fit all, especially in the world of technology where everybody is kind of still trying to figure out uh, works best for works best for their situation. So we definitely are not shy on thoughts and opinions. Um, but we definitely want to leave some room there, understanding that every situation is a little bit different. So no, I'm ready to dive in. I'm, I'm, I think we're talking about this beforehand and we kind of text a little bit about this today too, of like, we originally started with the prompt of like, where does it belong? Or, you know, how, how involved is product or, or, or of that nature, product development, like how much is operations part of it? Like that was kind of like, where's the, where's the ownership. But I think even before we got to ownership, I really think the bigger part of this conversation might even be the, what do you define as operations? Like what, what do you put in the operations buckets? When, when we're trying to yeah. define who owns operations, what do you classify as operations? So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. I usually have no shorting, uh, never short on jumping in, but I want you to start this. Way. So I defined this in my head as outages. And as we were talking about <laughs> it earlier today, uh, and then even right before the podcast, it, it hit me that what I meant when I said operations was the unplanned side of operations where something is okay. down and needs to be recovered. There's a problem and you need to fix it. And then uh, the, the category that I didn't think about enough is planned operational work, like renewing a certificate, um, adding capacity, doing other maintenance, upgrading the logging framework, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I've got in my head is the two categories of operations, mm -hmm. outages, and then standard stuff like upgrading packages and, and locking frameworks and such patching. Okay. Because this is why I think it gets blurry because I will, mm, I don't want to live and die on this hill. I think I want to live and die on this hill. I will live and die on the hill that most outages are not caused from features. Most outages are caused from <laughs> certs are caused from third-party management, are caused from system downage. So like if you're not maintaining your system. So I think that's why I want to start with like operations, not just the unplanned stuff, but the management of certs, the management of uh, versions and making sure you're on the most recent version and you're on the patch version, the management of connectivity um, kind of activities 
I, and just the upkeep of that, like to your point, certs expire, keys expire, uh, versions need to be upgraded, uh, just that stuff that I'd kind of put into that maintenance of a system is kind of what I put into operations. And you're right, in my definition, I throw in initial triage of outages into that. Um, but again, the reason I think I do that is because most of the time, those kind of spontaneous outages aren't driven from features or functionality, at least not outside the realm of a, a big release. I don't know. What's your thoughts? If what's your so it's, yeah, well, I think we're going to get into a fight here. Okay, <laughs> you said it's okay. your hill to die on. <laughs> so I, I, and maybe it's just experience or maybe it's the, the environments that we've been in, but I think actually my experience has been the opposite where okay. typically the planned maintenance is something that you can capture and recover from. And the impact to systems that I've experienced is more either scaling or introducing a new feature where you don't understand all of the implications that are going to happen. So you turn on a feature and suddenly it's causing more load on a database than you expected. Okay. You turn on a feature and it's causing more load against an API than you expected. And those are often, or sometimes those are, are less visible because you can roll back or you can turn something off. It's new in production, so you don't have to worry about it. But other times, there to me, there there is some aspect of business risk and business cost that goes into deciding do we fail forward or do we fail back? Do we degrade something else in order to keep this new thing that we want to have up? Mm -hmm. So it, it seems like it's more that. And uh, I, I will admit, probably two thirds of the outages that I've been a part of in my career are a cert expired or you know a license expired or what have you. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm speaking a little bit tongue in cheek there because I, <laughs> I will admit that I've been part of a fair number of those. Yeah, but you raise but, a good point. You raise a fair point because I mean, I'm sitting here nodding my head going, okay, yep, I, I get that. But I think that's actually going to make it easier for us to agree because we're probably closer on that new feature support than we are on something randomly happened in the middle of the night and we have no clue why. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and again, there, there's some tie together from that. Um, but I think just general feature support and release support and knowing what's your that you broke something with your new code, I don't think I would debate that that belongs back with the build team. So, so like, it, I don't think there's a contention there. Now we should still flush it out and we'll do that more in the conversation. But um, yeah, I, I think that, I think because we're defining these as I was thinking of cert outages and connectivity failures, and you're thinking of someone released something, they didn't know what they're doing and it broke something 10 streams down and now they're gone. Like, yep, yeah. I, I think that actually makes it easier to define where we think roles and responsibilities should be. Um, I will say I blame certs for at least half my decade of experience before I even knew what a cert was. Cause I swear every outage I in was like the first question I, I was right. Nine out of 10 times. Like did the cert expire? All I had to do was go in like, where's the cert on this connectivity? I at least knew what it had to do with connectivity and, and things yep, like that. Yeah. I'm like, did we check the cert? Yep. And I was probably right more times than not, even before mm -hmm. I knew what a cert was officially. Yep. <laughs> I, have uh, I have seemed more like a wizard in my career by my ability to take a packet capture. And like really, once you know how, it's not that hard, but you take a packet capture and you look at the SSL handshake. And if you can identify that a cert expired, or there's a cipher sweep mismatch, uh, people will, your will be very impressed token. by your magister, yeah. Yeah. magician work. Yeah, Some exchange That's... broke that says, I can talk to you. That's usually what's wrong. <laughs> Somebody's That's... not talking to somebody else yep. <laughs> and they need to. Uh, okay, so you you kind of hinted at it here, but you brought up build team. So let's mm -hmm. define product team involvement. And before we do that, 
I'm very curious, have you been a part of or worked with an engineering team that is end-to-end, that's truly DevOps, they build it, they run it, they're on call for it? Like, have you ever managed or been a product owner? For Most that recently. Kind of okay. Most recently. Um, and it, it's maybe not 100% that clean, um, but right now the team I manage, um, it's it's everything. It's what you define, it's what I defined, and it's what we're going to define here with you know the build piece of it. So um, when I say build, I mean, here's a new feature or here's a problem that we're going to go solve. We work in a concepting or design session. We write out user stories. We go build it. We deploy it. Like new feature kind of level stuff. Mm-hmm. I think you can still cut that into like a tech roadmap versus a product roadmap and, and yada, yada, yada. But basically when I say build, I'm talking about the effort that we're going to put towards new feature development or upgrades or big initiatives of that nature. When I say operations, where you're asking about, I'm talking about, again, that system maintenance. We run on Beanstalk. Are we on the most recent version of Beanstalk? We're on, you know, are our, are our certs and our API keys up to date or something expire? Um, all those things, all those operational pieces that include, hey, I currently manage a team that is the integration team, so we own the API stack. If APIs aren't talking together, there's not another team that gets called. Our team gets called. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that we definitely, um, I, the team I'm currently on has that full scope of work, which is why I don't like it. But we'll get to that here <laughs> in a little bit. <laughs> okay. So so you have. Uh, and then, uh, and so then product development to you here in that context is end-to-end require, like product requirements, ideation, all the way through to deployed, running, managing the logging, adding the alarms. And then you've spent most of your career on separate, right? Where there's a build team and then there's a run it team. Okay. Yep. There's a build team. And it's not that the build team can't take into consideration the fact that somebody has to support that. And again, we'll probably talk a little bit about it too, because you, you probably care about that a lot more when you're going to own it, but whether you're going to own it or not, your build team should always be considering like, I can't build something that's going to break every weekend or every night or something to that degree. So I, I still think regardless of whether you have build and operations separate, your build team should be conscientious of the operational impact of what they're building. So I, I, I don't think we're going to disagree on that one by any means. Uh, but yes, most of my career, those have been two separate things. The build team goes and builds. Once we get post-release or once the feature's been out for a while, we can kind of pass that what sometimes referred to as the warranty period. Yes, there's another team that if something came in that didn't get to that feature level item, it's just a bug, it's just a misspelling, it's just a slight change or hiccup or outage that would go to um, a different team to manage that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Is that clear? Yeah. So then here's my next question. Have you ever gotten the postmortem or the review for an outage and thought to yourself, business context means we should have solved this problem differently or we should have addressed the issue differently as it was happening like have you ever looked at an outage and thought i wish the engineering team had asked me a question before they did something not in the heart of an outage not usually um and and again maybe again it goes back to depending on the outage like i think there are times where let's say it's, it's a bigger feature release. So it's not just like continuous development. It's not just pushing out minor updates. Let's say we're like, Hey, we are turning this thing on at this point in time. I don't think I've ever been on one of those where that engineering team who built it wasn't already present and available and accounted for as part of that kind of big of a release, including the product team. At which point should we leave it on? Should we turn it off? Do we leave it in production for a little bit longer to try to troubleshoot it live before we decide to roll it back? Like 
I'm already there and part of those conversations because it was a big enough release. It wasn't just, again, it wasn't this continual development thing where we're releasing code all the time. It was a planned push of a major feature. Yep. Um, so since I'm on most of those scenarios, the other ones that it's more trivial or maybe not so much feature related or, um, you know, a huge side use case that didn't get revealed for two months. At, at that point, I, I can't think I've ever been in a situation where I've been like, man, I wish I would have handled that differently. Okay. Or I guess I, I I feel like you're hinting at something like you have an example. I want to hear the example. I have I have two. One of them is okay. is you and me and our previous work history. Oh great! And so then, that means I forgot something. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I just uh, I made the right choice and <laughs> you didn't need any input. Uh, so let's do the other one first. So I can think through how much of that, how much detail we can talk through there. But in one job ago, I was on a full stack service team. So we built it. We ran it. And the, I think maybe what's unique about this service was how high volume it was. So we had extremely high transactions per second. It was extremely critical. And when it went down, it, the, the situation turned from, it looks like you're having a couple errors to the VP of this 2000 person organization is going to be on a call in a minute asking you what's going on. And in those situations, we always engaged our product management team because the order and rapidity with which we degraded the service was very much a business decision. So we might decide to turn off feature A and lose its functionality and then communicate with the people who were users of this tool and say, feature A is gone. You need to work around it for a while. Or we might say, let's preserve feature A for another 30 minutes to see if we can recover it. We're going to degrade feature B, and that will give us more time to try and get everything back up and running. So in those situations, we were actively talking to our product management group in, I think, nearly every outage. Um, or, you know, like there were two customers who were having a problem or were causing contention over a shard or what have you. And we would say, do we want to disable one of them and preserve functionality for the other? Or do we want to let them both continue in this degraded state? Like how, what's the the best business option that we've got here? In those situations, could you fall back to normalcy? Like if you just backed out what was changed, could you get back to a stable state? Or did something have to be made in the functionality of what was going on right there? And that's that's what kind of what I think might be unique is most systems, the load or the the major change, the anomaly is what you've recently pushed. And in these systems, the anomaly could just be total volume, where you might quadruple, triple, quintuple your throughput in a very short amount of time, and then Mm -hmm. find the scaling bottlenecks in your system that even load tests weren't able to reveal. So there were a handful of those situations where genuinely nothing changed in the code that was deployed for the service, but suddenly another... 20 or 30,000 users were logged in and we're, we're doing stuff and needing your system yep. to be up and running. I see now we're kind of gotten away from your core example of most outages or caused by features. That's not a feature release. That's just purely traffic that you're now asking a product owner to come in and be involved in. So again, I still think that makes sense if it's an option, mm-hmm. uh, but I feel like it's a little bit different situation of something released, it broke. What do we do? This is this is just all of a sudden we had a spike in traffic that nobody anticipated and we have an operational issue. How do we handle it? And mm-hmm. I think that makes sense to bring the product owner in. But I don't think a product owner, if a product owner's decision is impacting customers 
and this is where it gets gray to an unreasonable standard. The most annoying thing as a product is realize that nothing was done because they're waiting to talk to you for two hours. Like, you know, and, and again, yeah. that reasonable standard, that's the gray area. Like how big of an impact is it before I need to ask permission or, or a product owner is going to care. But I would say most of the time that a product manager or product owner is going to be, um, it's mostly to stop the bleeding and you're as the engineer are going to know best how to stop that bleeding from us. Mm-hmm. So I think the only time maybe it's, it's, I know the debate's happening on my side is when it's more about this just happened to prod all of our tests pass. We don't know why it's happening in prod. How long do we let it bleed in prod to give us time to troubleshoot real time before we back it out and fall back? And I think that makes the sense for a product owner to at least weigh in a little bit. But I don't think even in that situation, I don't think there's ever a circumstance where an engineer having to make a decision on their own or engineering IT team having to make a decision on their own would be faulted for backing out and getting a customer back to a whole state. Yep. Um, so again, I would say most of those, like I, I agree though, it's it's good for the product owner to be there. If it's a feature type release, uh, I think the product owner should be there and be ready to make those and help make those kind of decisions. It shouldn't just be a product or IT decision anyways. It should be a conversation. Mm-hmm. And maybe that we're making this too dynamic. But in those ones where it's just truly out of nowhere spike, it's happening at 2 a.m. in the morning and you can't like, shh, mm, I'm probably changed on this. I've probably changed on this. I see myself now more than ever as an owner of that product, not an owner of that feature. And that product means the stability of what's existing today plus what's being built new. Um, Like I am responsible for not the ROI of a new feature that I released. I'm responsible for this entire project making money and being up and making our customers happy. I'm, I'm responsible for the total CSAT of this entire domain. So an outage impacts that. Um, mm-hmm. so, and maybe it's just cause I'm a little bit different position than where I was maybe five years ago, four years ago, it's in a more senior position. It's in a more ownership position, but I want to be more involved in those operational issues. So I would say, yeah, I would still want to call it two o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. if you have an outage and I want to maybe have to come in and weigh in, but I wouldn't want resolution to have to wait till I got there. Yep. It's a little bit of a ramble and, and a couple points, but what are your initial thoughts? That sums up the, the arrangement that we had with this group really well. Because okay. the same product group that we would escalate to were also embedded in our scrum meetings and they came to our retros and they were chatting with us on a daily basis. So it wasn't like we were escalating to somebody out of the blue. And then they also we also had enough rapport for them to know that we would make the best decision with the data that we had available. And if their input was part of that data, then we would obviously defer to them and, and pull on their expertise. But if their input wasn't, then as software or the development owners of that product, we would we were empowered to just go make the decisions we thought were best and yep. know that they would have our back. And if we made a bad choice, they would offer feedback and it. help us understand why. Yep. But they weren't going to throw us under the bus for doing something that we didn't have the right information to do better in the moment. No. And that's why I'm saying, like, to some degree, there is a like everybody has to keep the customer's best interest in mind. Like. So somebody trying to make the best decision they can with the information they have in a timely fashion is very rarely going to be dragged through the coals unless it was just a completely dumb decision that you should have been able, like in your position, you should have been able to make a better decision. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different topic. But like there's some of the, there's some expectation of you if you're in a decision making situation like that, you should have some basic decision making ability. But if you're genuinely trying to make the right decision, like I, I just I can't see how that ever comes back on you. Yeah, as long as you can explain your rationale. And a healthy organization. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I would definitely and, agree with that. And I do agree that is a third. That is a third scenario for operations where 
you've got an unplanned traffic spike. You've got excessive load. Yep. Nothing that should be unplanned anymore. <laughs> it's planned. Uh, it's as planned as anything can be. And that's different than a, a feature rollout, where in a feature rollout, you've got a probably back to normal course of action that's pretty defined. So mm -hmm. if a rollback has a good chance of fixing it, you roll back and then you ask questions later and yep. you, you figure it out later. So those, I think, are typically a little bit more straightforward where you can say, I pushed version 1.2 and everything is broken. Yep. We're going to go back to 1.1. But at the same time, I think there should also be conversations with your product team leading up to that to say, what's the impact of rolling back if we have to? What's the Agreed. consequences of missing this release window? Does it mean we go tomorrow or does it mean we're delayed six months? You know, what, like, what is our, what are the trade-offs that we're making decisions if we about decide to as roll we back. roll back? Yeah. Yep. And again, this is situational. This is definitely one of those situational things, but I will say I'm usually actually more of an advocate to roll back sooner than my engineering team is usually. Um, because I'm sitting there going, something's broke. It's ruining my system. We don't even know what it is at this point. Get it the heck out of my production environment. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, it's not always that cut and cold. To your point, if it's a four-hour rollback process and we don't have another window for two months, like there's reasons to leave it in there and try to troubleshoot live in prod. Um, but there is nothing worse than going prod's broken. Your engineer's like, well, the code I deployed didn't touch that code. I don't care. You're the only person that's deployed anything in the last six hours. Back out your code. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I'm being a little facetious, but yeah. Not at all. I, I, oh, no. I, I've been that engineer who's like, <laughs> I don't think I could have broken that. And then it turns out that you broke that. I'm just like, I just like, I'm sorry, dude. It broke in the last two hours. The only person to push anything in the last two hours is your code. I don't care if in the code you're over here and your other code's over here. Like, you did it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, revert, revert. Uh, but all, all kidding aside, like, no, I, I, I think. To your point, if you have the relationships, if you have the conversations, this all goes back to kind of what we've we've said a couple times on our podcast is you have to have the relationships and the healthy the healthy culture first because if you don't have that, all these theories go kaput. Um, yeah. Like if you don't have a good product engineering relationship, if your engineers feel like they're left out to dry with any decision they make and they, they aren't empowered to make decisions, if your product owner is dis disconnected from the product and just wants to be able to go say what they built last month, like. All those things break this. But yeah, if you have those relationships, if you have a plan, if you know, hey, we're releasing this big thing, let's monitor it for the first three hours. Um, then we'll sign off and everybody goes home. If for some reason the alert goes off in the middle of the night, here's the escalation points. Like if you've worked through all that, it shouldn't be an issue. And it, so here's the other twist I want to throw in there and see what your thoughts are. And you're kind of hinting at it there where some of this requires planning ahead of time. But something that is not intuitive is that rollbacks aren't always free and oh. rolling back isn't always safe if you've got data that's been written in a new format or it's not yeah. backwards compatible depending on how much has happened in that time yep. and how long it could realize and how long it'll be out so do you do you try to weigh in on those decisions like because that all has a cost right planning backwards compatibility is not free do you try to weigh in on that aspect of it where you say the system and this feature are critical enough that they cannot go down and we need to design this new thing in a backwards compatible fashion? Or do you just try to put that into a general SLA to say, we've got a 99.9 .9 whatever uptime and whatever deployments we have to do need to maintain that? You're getting into risk evaluation because it really depends yeah. on what, what it is you're touching. Like if you're touching a critical system and it is a core fundamental system of your, of if it's your customer demographics database and you're releasing a new field into that and it's live for 10 seconds or for 
for 10 minutes or for 10 hours and you've saved data to that and you roll back and you lose all that data uh, or something and you haven't accounted for that, you didn't have a good launch plan. Like that is part of the risk evaluation that happens during the build process of I need a way to roll this back when we go live. Like I can't go live and have negative impact if I have to roll it back. Mm -hmm. Like that risk should be defined before the go live even happens before the build even happens yet you, you need to build this in such a way to de-risk the chance of this going wrong or if it does go wrong i need to have a way to back it out now i'm in a position now to where again i'm in a smaller company and we're touching smaller things and we don't have the coding standards as strict as some of larger corporations and yeah there's time we look at code and go it's going to take us 10 hours to talk to this talk to this partner and set up a test environment to do a connectivity test for something that's just logging an error message and what no, we ain't testing that. We're pushing that. And if it breaks in prod, we'll back it out. Like it's a logging message. Like, you know, like there's, there's the risk type of conversation. Yeah. And there's a whole spectrum between point A and point B on that risk thing. Um, and so like, I think that what you're getting at is more, it should be happening way up front of, of the point of an outage. Now, if it doesn't, yeah, it definitely weighs in. Like if, if we're going to lose something, I'm going to be mad because I feel like I had my hands forced, but I'm probably going to be willing to have the product production out bitch longer. I'm probably going to be really willing to have the system be down longer and say, all right, we're here. We're, we're staying on until this is fixed. What's broke? And mm -hmm. How do we release and fix it? Um, and I've been in that situation to where your hands are tied um, to where you can't back out for one reason or another, and you're just stuck with it. And it was a two day outage on mm -hmm. a massive system. Um, it sucked, but I mean, we're not talking about life or death and any of the things that we're touching most of the time. So you you just make the best of it. You try to give a little grace and you work through it and plan better next time. Mm -hmm. And then what format do you communicate that kind of requirement? Do you Is that an SLA that you talk about? Or do you just call it out explicitly and say, what's your rollback plan? Or... Um, that's a great question. Um, I think it, it depends situational, like in a big corporation, most of that stuff is going to be like, you're going to have a template to define that up front. You're going to have mm -hmm. something to help assess the risk up front. You're going to have an architect that helps you define that up front. You can have things like that. Um, in a smaller company, um, it, it's communication. Um, it's like, golly, it's a great question. Um, I've been, like I said, in the larger companies, it was all part of non-functional requirements. You know, what are the things that we need to think about? And one of the things that we had to, that was on a checklist somewhere was backup plan. At the very beginning of the project, there's a backup plan. Like, do we need one? Should we not? So it was already kind of built in and baked into the process. But that was also a company that had extreme amounts of red tape. You couldn't do anything. It took forever to accomplish anything. So I wouldn't necessarily advocate that. I'm in a company now to where I'm having to advocate for those kind of things of like, hey, as we're building this, Again, a lot of times it's a new field that really kind of causes the, the example I have is, is database is database related, yeah. data related of, you know, you released new data points, you got information in it. Now, what do you do with it? Um, and that's that's the situation that's coming to mind for me right now. Um, and I think. Yeah, I mean, it, you should be calling out somewhere in the process where that's going to get called out, I think, is a little bit different for each situation. Yeah. And I, I my experience a lot of time has been or more recently has been that it's in the template where, yep. as you're saying, this is a uh, high criticality service. One of the things you talk about is what's your plan for backwards compatibility if you do need to roll back in any kind of data format or data schema change. But they're, they can be nasty. You can, you can have a lot of surprises when there's something in there that version one doesn't expect and it was written by version two.
it usually just means you have to back out more, um, yeah. but hopefully you don't lose the data while you're doing it. Like you got to back out the database changes, but you also got to back out the functionality that was referring to those database changes. And it's just kind of a spiral of how far down yeah. the chain do we have to go to get this, yeah. get this bug out while still not trying to lose what might happen, especially if you're transactional, man, if your transactional transactions happened and then you got, oh, yeah. oh my goodness. Yep. Turns into a nightmare in a hurry. Yep. Yep. So here's my second example. And we, okay. we might have to stay vague. So if there's nothing to talk about here, we'll just move on. No, no, no. Let's, let's talk about it. I'm curious now. Yeah. Do you remember when we worked at a company together and a lot of stuff went down? Yes. And, okay. We won't talk about why or even really name the company. But the scenario was that a ton of services were down. And with the, the IT engineering team, this was a separate ops and build team, was working through recovery. And we got critical, like hypercritical things up. And then after we got the obvious first phase done, there was a second phase of work that was a lot less clearly defined because people were really concentrating on how do we get the highest critical things back up. And at the time, one of the things that you owned was in that second box, right? That second slew of, of iteration. And it got fixed after some things that I think were probably much lower priority because the team was more familiar with them, they'd worked on them more recently, and your thing got pushed down the line quite a bit, actually, until finally it, it popped up and we, we resolved it or we got it back up and running. So I'm curious of two things. One, did you know that you got bumped down the priority rank? Oh, 100%. <laughs> and, other things? and then two, like, do you wish you had had any input or do you think there's any value in having more business input on that kind of thing or is it better just not to to let the engineers muddle through what they're going to muddle through um i think there are no win situations <laughs> <laughs> and this actually goes into the second part of the conversation i wanted to get to of why i prefer to have a operations team and a um and a build team because i hate the situation that you just outlined um, in my mind, if there is a technical, and I, and I can't remember the exact details of the bug. I remember why it had to go back to the original engineer who worked it because it was such an obscure piece of code that really he was only familiar with it and needed him to be the one to do that. I, I remember that situation. I can't remember if it was a feature or if it was infrastructure. Um, but in the example that I will give is just, I. it is very hard as a product owner to have your feature roadmap and your build map, build roadmap interrupted by... Um, system um, maintenance or system required updates and things of that nature. Like they have to be done. We all know they have to be done. Versioning happens, certs happen, uh, technologies change and you need larger scope because you can't just fit it. You know, the, the operations team isn't just going to go re-platform a team uh, or re-platform an application or an, another platform. Sorry, I'm losing my words here a little bit, but like there are times where the engineering need is going to push into the product roadmap. Um, and I think there's times where that makes sense, but my goal is to limit that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And one way of doing it is I know, so the way I'm doing it right now, let's, let's look at both these situations, is my IT team, as we, since we own the whole platform, they know they get 33% of the roadmap. Whether they want to use that for versioning, whether they want to use that for security upgrades enhancements, whether they want to use that for whatever is on their kind of more back-end system IT roadmap, I need to give them 30% of, the road, of that capacity. 
it's going to drive me bonkers when they want more than that. Like there's just no way around it. And there's going to be times, like I said, there are reasons to do that. Large rewrites, large scale enhancements, things like that. I know that in order to make my product better, I need to invest more in the back end, and I will give more than that 33%. But in general, 33% goes to the tech roadmap, and I want my IT team to be relatively stay, stay relatively close to that because we want to go over that to the example you gave at this previous company. My features got buffed down the roadmap simply mm-hmm. because I was told, like, this has to get done. He's the only person that can do it. Um, this is more important than what you're working on. And it's not what I wanted to work on my roadmap. It's not a feature that it wasn't enhancing the customer experience, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And so that, that's a hard thing to give extra capacity for. Versus if it's split out, um, the only time my team is really interrupted or that I really need to worry about it is when it's one of those larger scare things. If it's a different operations team that covers more ground, they probably cover more than just my team then. But if they're covering certs, if they're covering versioning, if they're covering all that just standard stuff that has to have licensing, all that standard stuff that has to happen every year. Um, that takes so much capacity, gives so much capacity back to my team. Now I know I'm paying for it somewhere else, but it makes it so much easier to plan my team's capacity and what features we're going to work on or what initiatives we're going to push for. Again, long winded answer, but yes, I know the situation. Yes, I know <laughs> I got deprioritized and that wheels me into why I like it as a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when it does come back, there's just no way around it. Like I, 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 it's, it's, you can't be idealistic. You're going to have times where that, those, those tech mandatory things interrupt your run. Yeah. So let's, let's lean into, it makes sense to separate it for a while. Yeah. And I think my final stance is going to be, it doesn't, uh, or is going to be against that, but let's, let's, let's lean into the positives of that. And, uh, what you're, what you're saying about handling all the standard stuff is the, the, shining example of why it makes sense to do because if you have every team need to have an ssl and a certificate expert and every team has to have a tools expert and a build and a deploy expert it spreads that expertise really wide and it makes a lot of people have to gain it where if you don't have engineers who are interested in that they're not excited about it it's going to take them longer if you can centralize that expertise and that knowledge, you can often do it more efficiently than if you tried to spread it across 15 or 20 product teams or whatever it is. So then you can get some some economies of scale where one team is able to handle what would cost two or three X if you tried to do it individually and you get a lot of standardization. Um, I think what has to happen though is a really good contract between those two groups to say, this is the limits we're accepting because we have to fit into your standard box that fits for all of these different teams. And we acknowledge that when we go outside of that, we need to solve the problem in this kind of way that works for both of us. And knowing the the delineation of who's on call for what, or who's on the hook for what, when it has an issue. And that I think is what's easy to skip. It's where you say, I'm going to shove off uh, operations and they're going to work somewhere else and I'm going to protect my product team and they're never going to have to get woken up in the middle of the night and they don't have to care what happens when it breaks. And then suddenly you've got a ragged operations team that's up at all hours of the night and, and really struggling. Yeah. And maybe there's even a line there that I still, f- hmm. and this might just be based on my experience. The more I try to kind of pick it up and look at it and examine it, this might just be based on my experience, but I still feel like you need to have a standard point, like a standard triage team. Like, and maybe we call it different than operations, but it just naturally really fits into operations. But like, if something goes down, like, I still feel like there's an initial triage team that should take that. And I think most companies have that, at least medium to big size companies of where this broke in the middle of the night, 
that goes to a centralized location. That's not automatically paging engineers on individual teams who are on call. Like there's still an initial analysis, initial review, an initial like, is this something simple and quick that an operations team can handle? And if not, then it rolls down further and you start having on call thing and things of that nature. So in my mind, though, there is still a and I put it with operations that operations team usually is more after our support or at least where that that initial contact comes through the front door, um, regardless of time. So I. So I agree in in situations where they're split, usually that's what I see, where if you are going to split off from an operations team and a development team, usually I see your operations team have tiers of support where you send it to a front front and help desk guy or individual, and they figure out if a customer is just clicking the wrong button or if there's really a problem. If they get the same report from 10 people, they bump it up a tier, that bumps it up a tier, and finally it gets to somebody who's going to go check out the repo and and read the code and figure it out. And I think that is the only way where if you've got the split, it's really hard to have the proper alarms and metrics so that it could go straight to the person who can solve it. Like it's, you're going to wind up with a lot of false positives. So then it makes sense to filter those through different layers of skill and, and maybe pay grade before it gets all the way to the person that you're, you're trying to protect and reserve for feature development. And that's why like, as an engineer, I would think if you're looking at an operations role, I automatically think on call should come into your mm-hmm. like you just you, into your mind like you you have to know that you're signing up for an on call position. Now, hopefully that's not abusive. Like hopefully that's a rotation and again whole bunch of other caveats. But if you're signing up to be a build engineer or something that looks more like a build role, I don't necessarily think you walk through the front door thinking you're going to get an on call phone. Like and and to me like that distinction has been pretty consistent. So I don't think that's just my experience. Um, until recently, <laughs> you know, where there is that ex- expectation. But again, it's a smaller company, and we're looking to switch to an operational model just because of the scale of it. Um, so again, I think size has a lot to do with it. But I, I do think there is a after-hour support on-call mindset that does tend to go with operations um, that doesn't come with maybe a more standard engineering role. I agree. That's probably the standard where yep. more places would advertise a developer a build role built from scratch and an operations role as the build it from scratch group you don't expect to have an on-call phone as the run it group you expect to to go on call and have that and either get compensated for it and pto or extra dollars or whatever it is and interest like different people actually like yeah Mm -hmm. like as crazy as it sounds to those of us that don't like the on-call and the opt-hour stuff like that that troubleshooting, I'm not sitting here just pounding out code and building the same thing for six months. I'm like, I'm troubleshooting what's coming in today. I'm working tickets. I'm like just passing things through. And hey, that comes with some after hour support every now and again. Um, but that's something they enjoy doing. So. I'll, def- I'll defend that. So there yeah. is there is a, a certain adrenaline rush that, and of course, caveating heavily, I don't want to go on call all the time. I don't love being woke up in the middle of the night. But there is a certain adrenaline rush that comes with getting paged, knowing there's a big problem, having a lot of attention, and then solving the problem. And you and I, not that this is you, but you and I both have very prime examples of people that love playing hero and got a thrill <laughs> off being hero. Uh, and I'm guilty of that at times, yep. right? Where yep. it, it can be really fun to be needed in that way, or it feels good at times. So so there, there is something to that, where getting called and solving a problem, protecting revenue, 
And it, it doesn't have to turn into the hero complex, but there there is a certain adrenaline rush to solving a problem. There's that a value. Lot of care about. You do feel valued in that yeah. kind of, and you feel Definitely. like you can make a difference and you can make an impact. Like, yeah, hundred yep. percent. So I don't want to just all make it out the bat. I just, again, I have, we all have past experiences uh, with things going differently, but so that's, uh, that's my, my lead into why I don't think splitting it is a good idea. <laughs> most of the time. Man. Really, even yeah. even a larger scale. And even let's just be clear, we've covered a lot of things. The day-to-day operational tasks that I was kind of talking about, or I guess where where don't you see splitting it, or you don't see splitting it at all? Almost all of it. So okay. there are some things where you will get some economies of scale by outsourcing them, but I don't think any of them involve pager. And the reason is, to me, it turns into we're building software that has too many bugs. We don't have time to build software and fix the bugs. We're going to make somebody else fix the bugs while we build buggy software. And even the cert stuff is a great example where the places that I've worked that had a separate operations team, that turned into a painful, repetitive task of renewing your certs, checking on them, making sure that they weren't out of date. The teams that I was on that got paged for a cert outage automated all of it. They got an alarm six weeks before it expired. Automatically, the system would reissue a new cert and would have it in place four weeks ahead of time. The alarm would go away. If you got down to three weeks, it turned into a higher severity alarm yep. and it would, yep. would trigger for you. So even some of those seemingly mundane, repetitive tasks, I think can be and should be automated so that they're safer and more reliable, even at a larger scale organization. Here's here's the maybe the small rebuttal to that specific point. It sounds crazy, but I think you and I have also been in the industry long enough to start to see things change. Because what you just described, I feel like is more standard. And as much as I pick on cert outages, I don't see those near as much as I did six years ago. Yeah. Like, you know, so I mean, it was crazy for you and I only having just a little bit over 10 years experience to say, I think the industry has changed in some ways. Like, I do think that kind of alerting and notification and automation of certs is more standard. And whether it's an op, so I don't, the, the change that you've seen, I'm saying I might attribute more to just new tooling coming out more than to the fact that it was owned by the build team versus an operations team. But well, uh, that, so, that's, yeah, that's, a little bit of, that's a little bit of a hypothesis. That's definitely not factor yeah. based so on research or anything. I'll throw another example from that same group out where, like you're talking about, typically, if you have a an operational team, then they triage tickets, they get the first call, and then they kind of look at it before it goes anywhere interesting. Where that same team that had automated all of the cert replacement also created metrics on each of our features that indicated key business value and impact. So for every feature we released, part of the release was a set of metrics that told us, is it doing and adding the value that we expect? And then we could create alarms on those if it wasn't. So, you know, going back to the logistics example, if we got too many, say, login failures or too many unexpected, because the the software that we ran or part of it was an authentication system for Mm -hmm. warehouses, people at stations working in warehouses. And if we got too many people that were off their station at the wrong time of the day, that triggered an alarm to us. And that's enough of an indicator for us to say, the dev team needs to look at this. Something is out of whack. And maybe it's the metric. Maybe it's the alarm. Maybe it actually is a problem. But when the people who write the alarm also have to tune it, you get really high quality alarms. And you have to send it to a person to triage it far less. 
That's and it. So I, I should, I'll caveat too. Not every system is worth doing that with. And mm-hmm. there may be systems where it is cheaper and easier to have a person look at it. But I think in general, if your default is part of creating this is creating the monitoring for it, then that lets you page the right people at the right time, rather than having people who are just like terrified sitting at their desks all the time waiting for a page. But here's where, again, where I don't think we disagree as much as like what you're pointing out, I don't think has to directly apply to whether operations and build is the same or not. Now, in your experience, obviously, again, the, when the build team has more skin in the game, they're probably a little bit more engaged. But in my mind, proper alerting is part of build. Setting up proper alerting is part of build. If, you know, those alarms are noisy or it's going off all the time, that's something that build should probably affect. I, I could maybe see a little bit of argument there to where, like, operations is like, dude, we know this is no big deal. We'll just turn down the, the sensitivity on our own or something of that nature. So, like, maybe the, the fine tuning, I could maybe see there being some gray area and some debate there. But building out of those metrics or even building out of the automations in the search, like to me, that still comes back to build as responsible of building a solid system. Um, But I just still feel like there's enough of the maintenance tasks there that, that, that takes engineers out of the focus that I need to have them like, and not context switching and not having to also remember to do this random thing on the side when they're looking over here building new code and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, that cert from a year ago. Whether it's an alarm or not, whether it's automated or not, like that, that kind of maintenance, I just I feel like that's not the best use of a core engineer's time. And maybe we're getting to a little bit different of again to the point to your tiers and levels, but uh of operations. But to me, I don't want a engineer on my build team losing time to go and do certs or to go and do a version upgrade or to go and see why is this all of a sudden outside of vendor uh, vendor support or anything in that nature. Like I just, to me, that is such a disruptor to an engineer's normal day-to-day flow of what I would rather have them focusing on. Like I like the idea of outsourcing that. And to the points that you made while valid, I don't think that necessarily dissuades that they're still separate. I think you need to make sure your build team is accountable to your operations team, but I still think they can be separate, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's a little bit too much rainbows and unicorns. And that's just not how it plays out in the real world. (laughs) Well, I'll do the same thing where I, I agree. I think if you could, uh, I think if you could make that happen where the operations team has some level of control over the build team and what they do and is able to delay features then, and they're able to rate limit and say, sorry, um, the last three things you pushed were terrible and we're not letting you push this one until you prove that it's not terrible, then I could see that working. But then at that point, what's the difference between the build and the operations team? Because the operations team is going to need to know enough about the features to know if they trust them. And the build team is going to need to know enough about operations to prove that they've created something that's operationally sound. Yeah. Again, I still think there's, without going to, like, we could, we could, probably process this to death. Um, but I still think there's ways to achieve that. To achieve that confidence level or to achieve that. And what we've kind of taken out of this is I do still think the product team needs to be involved in both sides of the fence. And anytime you show a product owner a way to either raise customer satisfaction or save money, that equals priority. Like, yeah. so if operations team is sitting here saying, dude, your, your product broke 
twice in the last month for three hours at a time, kind of cost this much revenue and it costs this much engineering time on the operations side. Like that's a dollar value, like and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a CSAT value. Um, and that should be weighed against all of the other products, um, initiatives and values. Now, again, this is where you and I get a little contentious sometimes of like, sometimes <laughs> I'm willing to pay it, man. Like, sorry. Like sometimes I'm willing to send a lemon down to, uh, to, to operations and say, yep, you're going to have to refresh the servers once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I won't make you do it at two in the morning, but yeah, you might come into s- at eight o'clock in the morning and find out it's down. I need you to kick the server. Like that's worth it to me. Um, mm-hmm. And, but that's why I'm saying like, I think product still needs to be involved in that. Cause I think product is the mediator or should be, or could be debates there. But yeah. I think again, if, if your sloppy code or your lack of your build team, setting up your operations team is causing impact, that's measurable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that should be. Um, part of your product team's scope. And mm-hmm. I think that's, again, that's where I think I've maybe matured or at least, or just grown in my positioning. Like I was given a portion of a product to go build this product versus I own the program. I'm a program manager or a product manager and I have a larger scope and I'm caring about the whole entire funnel of this thing. Like maybe that's just natural growth in the rules that I've taken, but I think it makes a hundred percent sense, hundred percent mm-hmm. sense that product needs to be very conscientious of the operational cost. Yeah. And I, that might be part of what you're hitting, hinting at with the 30, 33 or 30% yep. where, uh, and I, to be totally transparent, I get heart palpitations when you say you're going to have to reboot the servers every two weeks. <laughs> like, oh no, <laughs> why? Why do you need to do that? Because you taking 10 <laughs> minutes to do that is cheaper than the $50,000 it would take me to fix something that I only plan on using two years. Yep. Whatever yeah. your reasoning is. Yeah. And, and that makes me more nervous because <laughs> <laughs> it's never two years. It's always 10. Um, Fair enough. But no, you, you make a great point that there are times when it is cheaper to analyze the problem, scope it so that you understand the true impact of it, and then mitigate it with proper alarming and monitoring and alerting and mitigations that might be turn it off and then turn it back on. (laughs) Um, You said something else in there about offloading it and I, or, you know, the product team being aware of the operational load too. And I think that's the other key is there there is a combination of costs that go into operational work and it's less during the day. It's more when you get paged. And if the product team is also accountable for that stress, leadership chains up and down are accountable for the stress impact of something needing to get, you know, be paged about and and come back up, then um, that makes sense to me. But I think it's really hard calculus to do to say, we really understand the cost of paging somebody at 2 a.m. And we are properly weighing that against how reliable the service needs to be and the yep. amount of human effort it's going to take to keep it in that state. Yep. And let's be honest, this is one other, it's more complex than this, but this debate or this real life scenario that happens for anybody that spent any amount of time in a software development company um, is why you get engineering led organizations versus product led organizations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it's definitely a key theme or at least weighs into what direction we want to go. Do we want engineers being able to prevent their abuse because there's a trust issue with product or do you build a product organization that supports and backs your engineering team? Like, mm-hmm. yep. 
and again, it's it's way more complex than that because I'm not even senior enough to know all the thoughts that go into why you do engineering versus product. But I I bet that this is I can see why this would be a key reason of which direction or what kind of company you prefer to work at because it takes a lot of trust and product needs to earn that trust to have engineering's back and to have IT's mm-hmm. back and to have operations back. And if you don't have that, and operations just feels like they're out to dry and they're just kicking the server unnecessarily at two in the morning when no one gave proper consideration to why it was built that way, like. Yeah, you've been there. It's it's a frustrating place to be. It's it's a demoralizing place to be. Um, yeah. and then it's not just a and not just a dollars and cents. It's a human cost. Um, yeah, that's really hard to to measure. So, yeah, I think we're we're definitely idealizing a little bit and trying to draw clean lines in something that doesn't really have super clean lines. But and again, we kind of caveat up front too of where there's reasons for both. I still really like the idea of having a different one, uh, having having a separate having a different operations team from my build team. Um, one other thought that I had when we were talking through this of why I think that is, though, is the companies where this has become most an impact for me, where I felt most the tension between operations and build are startup companies that are trying to get to growth phase, that are trying to get to kind of that, 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 that medium-sized company. Why? Because you've stinking ignored your tech debt for years to just try to survive. <laughs> and it's totally understandable. Like, you know why you're there. You made the right decision at the time. But now you're dealing with five years, three years, six years, 10 years worth of tech debt. And your product roadmap simply can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Like, and I already have some of that right now because I love being in this phase of company. And this kind of company I'm at right now, it's a, it's a startup going to a growth phase. Um, and so we're profitable. But now we're sitting there looking and I'm like, what do you mean of the 10 applications that we have that four of them are outside of vendor life vendor support? Like, like I worked in a company that that's just like, that doesn't happen. You don't do that. Like you shut it down. Mm-hmm. Like, and the fact that that's just, and so it's just like, so I have two choices. I can either dedicate a hundred percent of my resources to an IT roadmap to go and try to harden for the next quarter, two quarters, mm-hmm. like to try to clean this up. Or I need somewhere else to go with it. I need somebody else to be able to manage this and start chipping away at this and try to start breaking it down because we can't stop building. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think as we're talking through this, I think there's also a bit of like company state that makes me say the companies I've been in where I feel like I need the operational team is also where I need a team that's just dedicated to hardening mm-hmm. our system um, and to keeping our system up to date because the tech debt is just too large to be able to sacrifice your build team 100% of the time. Yeah. So I think that factors in a little bit too. Yeah, and I something that really hit me from this conversation was that the the checks and balances are really the big question. Where yes. if you've got the proper checks and balances between product and engineering, you can probably have full stack. Where you trust engineering not to to defer product features because they just want to create new tools or migrate to Docker or whatever mm-hmm. it is. You got the right checks and balances that can work. You divvy it up into three groups, operation, product, engineering. You've got the right checks and balances where everybody has the right level of empathy and concern about each other. That can work, and it can be sustainable long-term. Um, and it's, it's all, as always, it's more about the relationships and about making sure that the right people are concerned for the right other individuals and keeping the company and the team first instead of one group or their own priorities. And what I will say is, like even with that, kind of description uh, roles and responsibility like between those groups like for you and me i just find it interesting that we see those as guiding principles like they're not they're not not my job pillars they're how do we make sure we have the right people doing the right thing that we have full coverage Mm -hmm. and so we put a little bit more value on 
roles and responsibility just for clarity's sake, just to make sure that mm-hmm. when we do have an issue come up, we know who's on first, we know who's on second, we know who calls who, we know how it works. Um, again, you get back up to startup land, not to keep going off of my, my epitome as the, uh, I had a while on this call, like you wouldn't survive. Like the, the team would be looking at you going like, what, you're not on board. You're not a team player. Like you're not, you're not willing to jump in and take care of this. Like, what do you mean that you're just an engineer and you're not operations? Like that concept, it doesn't work when you're in startup. Mm-hmm. But like, so I, I just think it also just, again, different situations call for different things. I do think once you get to stable, I still think, like you said, like it's more about, um, How'd you phrase it? It's, it's not so much about the teams as much as the relationships and the communication. Checks and balances. Checks and balances. Thank you. That was yeah. the word I was looking for. So checks and balances between those. I think if you define those checks and balances, you can make any other system works. You may have preferences. I may have preferences. Obviously, there's companies out there making both work, you know, but it's just how do we do it in the most healthy way possible? And that goes back yep. to the relationships. Yeah, makes sense. Any any other closing thoughts? I don't know. I feel like we rambled a bit more on this one because I feel like there's so many different directions. Are we talking about features? Are we talking about uh, you know, maintenance? Are we talking about two different teams, one team, big company, small company, like engineering led, product led? Like I feel like this conversation touches on so many different aspects that help feed to why does it feel like there's tension sometimes? How can you manage that tension? How can you make there less tension? Um so I like where we landed. I think the checks and balances is, and the definition of terms really helps. Um, but ultimately it's going to come back down to people and, and being a human and having a heart. <laughs> yeah. It, it's more expansive than I thought where I had, I thought it was a pretty narrow scope of should product develop or the product team, product management team be involved in outages, but there's more to it. And there's more planning that should go into it before you have the outage to really get it correct and make sure that you've got it right. So again, coming all the way back to checks and balances, making sure that you've got the right empathy for the right people and their own, their situations and what they're trying to contribute. It'd be a fun one to come back to um, later. I think we could definitely probably have no round on this and like, what have we learned two years later in our career? So yeah. well, this well, is good. <laughs> I'll mark it down for the uh, learnings from the end podcast. Learning from the L, <laughs> man, dude, that makes sense. going to be like when we're like 55 and we're retiring. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, no, good podcast. I think we're <laughs> yep. good. Send us out, man. Yep. Alrighty, this has been Learnings from the Mill. Thanks for listening.